0: Right, I'm on. Good morning. Uh, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the leaders here at City Light and uh, it's great that you could join us here this morning. It's a beautiful winter's morning to be here and gathering together. It's also a great time of year given that uh, it's the World Cup going on right now. Has anyone been watching that? Okay, for the both of us it's been a great time. I, I, I love the World Cup so much that sometimes I'll just text my mate Cam who's here at church as well. Because, because the World Cup isn't a person that I can express my love to, I'll just text Cam and say, I just love the World Cup so much. And it'll just, there'll be just various moments where it occurs to me how much I love it, and I need to, I need to get it out there. And uh, so every now and then I'll do that. So look, I'm in a great mood, and it's going to be a great morning for that reason. But um, now look, the, the best thing about this morning is we've come finally to the end, the final chapter of the book of John. We spent almost four months in this one book, i um, tracking from the beginning of Jesus' ministry right through to the night before his death, which is pretty much half the book, to his death and resurrection. And now we kind of land on the final bit, the last part of the story. And if you know anything about stories, the last part is always the crucial bit, isn't it? If you're reading a book, it's either foolishness or wisdom to flip to the last page, Uh, If you're happy to ruin the story for yourself or you're nervous about how it's going to turn out, you turn there and it'll affect the whole rest of the story. Well, we get to the end of of Jesus' sort of life and ministry. And this last part uh, has a profound place in the book. How it finishes is worth paying attention to because here he outlines what the purpose of following him is as we finally get to the end of the book. And I think the reason this is so crucial that you understand what it means not just to believe that Jesus existed, but that He died and rose again for you and what that means for your life is because I think it's pretty pertinent that we understand what the purpose for our life is, isn't it? I was reminded of this this morning when I saw in the Sydney Morning Herald, they had an article, sort of a little op-ed, and um, it, was, it was titled, you may have seen it because it's fairly, you know, eye-grabbing, gra- eye whatever, uh, attention-grabbing, uh, but there's t- an article entitled, When Did My Friends Get So Bloody Boring? And, and the article is, it's not one of those ones where it's a twist and it turns out they really like their friends. She, she really means it. Uh, listen to this. This dinner, she's talking about a dinner with a group of friends that they'd known f- for ages. You know, kind of some of them had been part of their, um, you know, groomsmen, bridesmaids, that sort of thing. So long-standing friendships. They'd known each other for a long time. So this dinner was a textbook case. Rather than conversation, we'd had a series of whinging monologues, each person moaning about his or her job, the state of their downstairs bathroom, not a euphemism, I'm afraid, that would have been interesting, or the, or the impossibility of ever retiring on the various bits of string and old coppers that constitute our pensions. And so this is a group of friends who are all sort of in their early 50s, so they're past sort of the midlife stage, sort of set up, established in life, homeowners, kids, grown up, mostly moved out. Um, but she also said, made this comment, said, although there has only been a small number of divorces among the couples we know, few seem to keep the romance alive. I'm not talking about the torrid couplings of early dates. Who has the energy for that? But our friends just don't seem to fancy each other anymore. When there is publicly appropriate physical contact between them, it's like watching someone stroke the worn uh, finial of a Bannister Newell post. I don't know what that means, but it means it's bad. It it means that there's not a lot of affection between the, the couples. And it was kind of sad, like reading this article, that this was kind of her summing up the, the group of their friends. Uh, and even with that, though, the, I mean, the other thing that kind of struck me was that um, there, was a, there was a tone in it. And I'm sure, like, when you write an article, you, you kind of exaggerate things for the sake of, you know, an audience and all of that. But there was this tone in there that she felt like her and her husband were far too interesting to have to suffer these kind of intolerably boring people. And I thought, well, hold on a minute. <laughs> uh, one, of the, one of the things she said in the article was that, look, the, um, uh, the people who were there just asked them no questions about their life and were, and we're totally self-involved. And I thought, well, hold on. Before you call the boring police, you may find yourself arrested. It was almost like this, this group of people ha- had come together and got so caught up in their own interests that they just become boring people. And isn't it the case that the more self-interested we become the more boring and bored we become with other people and even with ourselves. And I wonder if it's partly, and for this group in particular, it's partly that maybe the Australian dream doesn't have enough in it to build an entire life upon. The idea of settling down, getting married, having two kids and a three-bedder on a quarter-acre block, even once you get it, is not enough to build a life upon. The people actually finally realize what they've been working and striving for their whole life and they get there and it's kind of a bit meh. And so you have boring dinner parties and then write nasty articles about it. So I have a theory that the prevailing worldview is is a worldview of self. Look after yourself, do what you can to express yourself, all that kind of stuff, but it's not enough to build an entire life upon. And then eventually, we kind of find that actually it sells us short. And somewhere around the midlife stage, when we reach the halfway point, we can see what's coming. And we're like, this is not going to carry me to the end. This does not have enough meaning in it to carry us to the end. That what we want is a bigger story to throw our lives into. One that really matters and isn't just about me and my personal well-being. A story that would involve others and, and it would call us to lay down our lives for others and for a greater cause. Well, this is what Jesus says it it means to know him. To know that Jesus died and rose again for you means that you are united with the greatest story in the universe, the story of God's rescue of his people, and that your life will be poured out, not for mere self-interest, but in the eternal cause of doing good to others and showing them, Jesus, that they may find hope and peace and forgiveness of sin in him. And I'm going to pray that as we look at this chapter, that that's exactly what we'd find. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you're a good and heavenly father and that you're a good storyteller. That the story that you have is better than the one that we write for ourselves. That your story is one of sinners who had rejected you and yet in love you sent your dear son to die on their behalf. That we might be reunited with you with the greatest reunion story in history. We pray that as we look at this story today, as we look at the end of the Gospel of John, that we'll be overwhelmed by how much Jesus has done for us and the life that he calls us to. We pray this for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, this section, this last little chapter, is kind of devoted to the the aftermath of the climax of the book. So it's kind of like in The Lord of the Rings, when it finishes and they defeat... I nearly said Voldemort, sort of mashing, (laughs) mashing books up there. Defeat... What's his face? Sauron something? Yeah, Sauron. And um, yeah, the great high wizard. And, uh, and then after that, there's kind of like this whole section where they go back to their little village. And the story just kind of keeps going. It almost ends like five or six times. It's almost like that's happening in the Gospel of John. we at the climax, right? Jesus is arrested. He's unfairly prosecuted. He is crucified and tortured before all. He dies. He rises again. He, they, they witness his resurrection. And then there's more to the story. See, last week we saw that Jesus physically rose from the dead and that there is good reason to believe that this wasn't just... I mean, in the Gospels, it's not testified that, that Jesus rose in the hearts of the disciples, that he physically rose and He actually defeated sin and death. But there's good historic reason to believe that this is the case. We looked at the fact that the first converts were in Jerusalem, the very people who could prove if this was actually just a myth and something that someone had made up. We saw that the first converts were Jews, the least likely people to believe a lie like this, if it was a lie, and that the disciples and many more died for what they believed—they weren't just making something up; they were fully convinced of it. And so this week we kind of, uh, kind of start back in the passage we are in last week in John chapter 20, and Jesus has just risen from the dead, and he comes to speak to his disciples. Now he has just presented himself to his disciples, the first witnesses of the resurrection. Now imagine for you how keenly you'd be paying attention to his words at this point. If you met someone who you saw them die, you were there when it happened, and you saw them physically rise from the dead, if they came to speak to you, even if they were giving you instructions on how to put IKEA furniture together, you'd be hanging off every word. You'd be listening to everything they have to say. And so here, Jesus is speaking to them, and they're listening intently. And this is what he says, John 20, 21 and 22. Jesus said again to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So they're hanging on his every word, and he says to them, As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. In the same way that the Father sent me, that is the same way in which I am sending you, this group of disciples that he has there. And this is massive. Jesus already said in John 5.19, He says, The Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Jesus, Jesus was saying His relationship with the Father, both being God, was so tightly connected that it was fair to say whatever Jesus was doing is what the Father was doing. That's how closely connected those ministries were. And now He's saying, in the same way I'm sending you on. So that then means that what the church does is what Jesus is doing. The way he's going to carry on his ministry and his mission in the world is through this people, the church. He says, in the same way the Father sent me, so I am sending you. The same connection that the Father has to my ministry will be the same to yours. That when the church does what Jesus has commanded his church to do, they're acting on behalf of Jesus in the world. It's the case that they were called apostles initially, which just means sent ones. That's where we get the word sort of post, apostos. He's saying these, these were sent ones because they were sent by Jesus to carry out and to carry on his mission in the world. And they were to do it on his behalf. That actually the way that his disciples were to be treated, Jesus says, is how people treat Jesus. That he's so tightly connected to his church and notice that immediately after commissioning them, he breathes on them, which would be a weird experience. But to make a point, he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, what's, what's happening here? Well, Jesus wasn't averse to giving object lessons. He didn't, just, he didn't just give verbal lessons when he was teaching his disciples. Often he would do things to teach them what was going on. So earlier, earlier on in this part of the, the series, we looked at when Jesus was telling them that they needed to serve. And so he didn't just get up there and say to them, hey, disciples, I've really served you a lot. You guys should go and serve. What did he do? He got down and he washed their feet physically to demonstrate to them the kind of character that they would need to demonstrate in their ministry. And he says to them, as I served you, so you will serve. A servant's not greater than his master. And so here, he gives them an object lesson. He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit because he's kind of punning here. The word for spirit, which is pneuma, also kind of means breath. It has the same kind of root word. So if you think of things like pneumonia, that's a a lung issue or a pneumatic tire. It's got air in it. That's where we get it from, from the Greek. And so he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. In chapter 16, the night before his death, when he's got them all together for a dinner, he says to them, I'm going to go away. So I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. I'm going to go away from you guys and it's good that I do that because if I do this, I'll send the Holy Spirit who will be God's presence dwelling in you to empower you for ministry. He says the Spirit will, will lead you into all truth. That if you're here and you're a believer, the reason you can understand the Bible and not just see it as mere words but as truth is because the Spirit has empowered you to do that. He says the Spirit will, will, lead, uh, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness and judgment. The way that someone comes to faith in Jesus is not by mere fiat of their own will, but the Spirit actually working in their hearts to see Jesus for who He is. Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would empower their ministry, that God Himself would be with them to carry out this mission, to carry on Jesus' mission in the world. And so here, He breathes on them, He says, receive the Holy Spirit. At the same time as He's sending them out and commissioning them, He says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, if you've read any of the other Gospels. So there are four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John is the weird one. He's off, sort of off to the side. The other ones look reasonably similar. And John's got a lot of the most sort of original material, unique from the other Gospels. In, in other Gospel accounts, Jesus says to the disciples, wait here in Jerusalem until I send you the Holy Spirit. And so in the book of Luke, Luke wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. He says that. And then you see in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, which is 50 days after the Passover, that they receive the Holy Spirit and suddenly the the mission explodes, right? People are getting saved left, right and center in Jerusalem and the the mission of God absolutely explodes. So what's happening here? Is Jesus giving like, is he kind of giving them like a little just minor shot of the Spirit and like the big dose is coming later? What's actually going on here? Well, look, given, given two things... Given that Thomas, one of the disciples, isn't actually present for this meeting. If you remember from last week, one of the disciples, Thomas, comes later to witness to the resurrection. So he's not here at this point. Given that that he's not there, and given that there isn't a major change in the way that the disciples behave at this point, I think it's fair to say that they really receive the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And what Jesus is doing here is teaching them about what's going to happen. But John is giving us an insight into something that Jesus taught them about. He's saying, look, I'm going to send you out, but you'll need the Holy Spirit for this ministry. And so here, he then finishes with a statement that I don't know if it stood out to you as we read through it, but sounds a little weird. In John 20:23, 20, Jesus says this, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What does this mean is he saying to these disciples guess what you now get to be god you can walk around and judge people you can say you're forgiven you're forgiven you're not forgiven you're right they can just they can make it up as they go along see even in one of the gospel accounts when jesus heals a paralyzed man the first and he says to the man before doing this your sins are forgiven the first accusation that comes out of the crowd is who can forgive sins but god alone God alone has the right to do this. So it can't mean that Jesus is just now kind of deferring this power to someone else and saying, look, yeah, I'm going to leg it. I've got other stuff to do. So I'm going to give you the power to work this out. Hopefully you do it fairly. No, that can't be the case. So what's he saying here? He's saying when, when his people speak the gospel, they speak with the full authority of Jesus. Think about it like this. Great show, a bit intellectual. Um, Judge Judy. What a show. The people are real, the cases are real, and the judgments are final. (laughs) But I love this show, mostly just because I love Judy. They tried to replicate it without her. They had Judge Joe Brown, um, which was kind of like an inversion of Judge Judy. Judge Judy was like a white female judge with a a black male security guard. Then they switched up and had a black male judge with a white female security guard, just for balance. Um, But he didn't have the same kind of, you know, persona as she did. But... um, but one of the things in it, and like it's, it's always ruling over such minor things like it's a couple who were together and, you know, someone gave the other person an alarm clock and then they kept it and now they broke up and they want the money back or something like that. Like it's just, I mean, how she wades through just hours of this stuff, I don't know, well done to her. But, um, but the idea is that when she, when she makes a ruling on something, that it is, it's final. So once she says, this is what's going to happen, that's what's going to happen. Now, the truth is, she doesn't enforce any of it, does she? But she has the backing of the state to make a judgment of something that they will then enforce. So when she says it, it's final because she speaks on behalf of the state and with the authority of the state. Now, Jesus is saying here, when you preach the gospel, these are not going to be idle words. When you say to someone, if you believe in Jesus, your sin is washed away completely, and God adopts you in and makes you completely new, it comes with the full authority as if Jesus was standing before them saying the very same thing. The 18th century preacher Charles Spurgeon puts it this way He says, Jesus is saying, As you proclaim my gospel, I will back up your message. When you preach of pardoning blood, I'll make it effective. When you declare to penitent sinners that their sins are remitted, it shall be so. And when you tell those who believe that they are condemned already, that except they repent, they shall, be, shall abide in condemnation, their sins shall still be retained. The true minister of God speaks not apart from the word of God. And when he speaks the word of God, the word of God is himself there to make it effective. It shall be no wasted thunderbolt. It shall fall in reality. What the servant of Christ declares according to the scriptures shall really prove to be true. This is what Jesus is saying when he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. And if you withhold this forgiveness from any, it is withheld. He's saying, as you hold out the true gospel, people will really come to know God in truth. These won't be mere idle words. It's not like a well-wishing or a sentiment where you're like, I hope things go well for you. God bless you, that sort of thing. He's saying, as you hold out the true gospel, people truly have their lives transformed. Jesus commissioning his disciples to carry on his work. Jesus came To seek and save the lost. And he's saying, now that mission is going to be yours to carry on through the power of the Holy Spirit. But a question that may come up in your mind is, well, isn't this just for the disciples? They're the only ones who are there to hear this. Does it kind of finish up with them? Well, when Jesus is talking to this group of disciples, he already has the church in the future in mind. I mean, when they were together having their final meal in John 17, he prays for the church down the line, but even here in John uh, chapter 20, uh, 29 and 30, when he's talking to Thomas, so Thomas finally meets Jesus and believes that he's risen from the dead, says, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. And then we get the purpose statement for the whole book. This, is, this sums up the entire book that we've looked at for four months. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, so, this is the whole purpose of the book. And not only that, Jesus has in mind those who down the line are going to hear of him and believe in him, those who didn't witness him. He's saying this ministry will be carried on by his church. And that explains what happens in this final chapter. Because again, you would think, look, a good place to end this book would be with that purpose statement, Right? John's just summed up the whole thing. These things were all written. That sounds like a great concluding statement for an essay. And then the story keeps going. Look at what happens in John 21, 1-14. to We get this strange story about fishing. It says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. So this is well north of Jerusalem. They were in Jerusalem right where Jesus had died and risen again. And they go way up north, kind of near where he, um, he fed the 5,000. Uh, and we walked on the on the water. <clears throat> and it says uh, the, so they're up there by the sea of Tiberias, and he re- revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing, and they said to him, We'll go with you. They went out and got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and they were now not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. Then he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in uh, it came in the boat, a drag a full net of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards. When they had got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, and the fish was laid out on it and bred. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught." So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, one hundred and fifty three of them and although there were so many that the, uh, though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you' They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so, and so with the fish. This was the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So you get this strange kind of story that sticks out. They're in Jerusalem. We know that they're bunkered down because they're worried about the Jewish authorities coming to kill them. And suddenly they decide to go on a fishing trip up north. Maybe, maybe to recover from all the chaos of what's going on. We're not really told why. We're just told that they go up north. Um, for a fishing trip. And when they get there, they go out at night, which was the optimal time to fish in the Sea of Galilee. They catch nothing all night. Light, first light starts to break, and suddenly Jesus is there. Jesus says to them, go back out, throw the net over the right side, which is not any kind of fishing technique. It's just arbitrary. So he says, go and throw it over the right side. And they bring in this huge haul of fish, and they realize that it's Jesus. Well, what is the point of this story? It seems odd. And it's got odd details in it, like there are 153 fish. Well, firstly, it's there because it happened. And as we mentioned last week, when you have an eyewitness account, often you get arbitrary details thrown in, like remembering that there was 153 fish. It doesn't add to the story. People have tried to make metaphors out of it, what that represents. It's it's nothing. It's 153. It's just how many fish they caught. But he kind of remembers the detail and recalls it. But the main thing that seems to be going on here is that fishing had always been for Jesus a metaphor for the ministry that he was going to give to these apostles, these disciples. It comes up again and again. He tells them, I will make you fishers of men. This idea of bringing a great hall was always a metaphor for the ministry of them being a part of seeing many people come to follow and know Jesus. And so it seems fitting after having commissioned them and sent them out that he gives them a living illustration of what that's going to be. When they go out without Jesus, they catch nothing. And when they go out on his command, they bring in an incredible hall. Jesus preparing them for the ministry they're about to experience. They're going to see people in their thousands converted in the city of Jerusalem only a month or so after they thought this movement had completely ended with Jesus being crucified. As Jesus sends them out, They will fulfill his mission. And that's probably what explains what happens next. They kind of bring the fish in. They're all sitting down to breakfast. And then Jesus starts a conversation with Peter, who's kind of the team captain of the disciples. Look what it says in 2115. It says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. What's happening here? Why is is this important? They've just caught this massive haul of fish. They come to the shore. They're having breakfast, and Jesus, just out of nowhere, says, you, Peter, do you love me?" And he's like, yeah, "Yeah, I love you." And he asks him a second time, "No, do you love me?" And he's like, "Yeah, I love you, Jesus." This is getting weird. Just leave it alone. And he asks him a third time, and you notice Peter is grieved when that happens. He's suddenly upset because he realizes why Jesus is doing this. Because only a few chapters earlier. Peter promised to Jesus that he would never, ever, ever deny him. And Jesus said to him, I tell you, before the rooster crows three times, you will deny me. And Peter denies Jesus three times to three different people. And here, Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? Because he is restoring him to this ministry. And so Peter is grieved because on the third time, he realizes what Jesus is getting at. He's like, that's right. I denied you. And this is Jesus forgiving him and restoring him to ministry. It's kind of a, a bit of a tender moment between the disciples and their master. Jesus restoring the team captain, acknowledging what had happened. Because you couldn't just, you couldn't just paper over that. Everyone knew about it. People saw it and witnessed it. The, the, the team captain denying that he even knew Jesus. And to, it was to a servant girl who asked him. He was too scared to admit that he knew Jesus, even to a girl who could, couldn't even harm him. And so Jesus here in front of them is restoring him to leadership in the disciples. And then he goes on to say this, John 21, 18 and 19. Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. He said this to show what kind of death uh, he, was to, uh, he was to glorify God. And after this, he said to him, follow me. I don't know how you would feel if someone just told you that you were going to die. Jesus restores him to ministry. He's going to lead the apostles out the other side. He's going to lead this mission. After being the one who denied Jesus three times, he's the one who's going to lead the charge. And the recordings that we have in the book of Acts is that he'll be beaten and just rejoice and, and, and defy the authorities by saying, you can beat me all you want, you can imprison me, but I'm, I'm going to keep talking about Jesus, you can't stop me. And Jesus prepares him here by saying, Hey, look, just so you know, in your older age, someone's going to lead you where you do not want to go. That is, they're going to lead him to his execution. And if church history is correct, he was crucified. I don't know how you'd feel about it, but John tells us how Peter feels about it. In 21, 20 to 23, he says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John's casual way of talking about himself. Um, But he said, uh, Peter turned and saw uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, so Peter is kind of eyeballing John at this point, and now he's got a question for Jesus. He said, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he should remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And so the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple, that is John, was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Peter is like almost a bit childlike at this point. Jesus restores him to ministry and he says to him, look, Peter, you're going to die for telling people about me. And then Peter's like, well, what about John? What's going to happen to him? If I have to die, what's going to happen with him? And we know again from church history that John was the only disciple who didn't meet an early death for following Jesus. That he wrote this gospel later than the others because he survived a lot longer than the others. But he did suffer. He saw his brother was the first to be, to be killed as a follower of Jesus. Not only that, he had to watch all of his friends die for following Jesus and he himself was tortured before being exiled where he wrote many of his letters like uh, potentially the Gospel of John, but certainly the book of Revelation. And notice that Jesus doesn't say to him, well, Peter, don't worry, because like, things are going to get really bad for John. And look, I've got a whole checklist of what's going to happen to the rest of you. It's fine. It's all, it's all in. He doesn't say that at all. He doesn't use any comparisons. What does he say to Peter to reassure him? When Peter is saying, well, if I'm going to die an early death, what, what about him? Jesus just says, Look, if if he was to stay around until I come back, what's that to you? You follow me. And this book ends the section that we've been looking at. In chapter 12, Jesus says, anyone who would serve me must follow me. And in this last chapter in 21, he says twice to Peter, follow me. To follow Jesus means to carry on his mission in the world. And Jesus says to Peter, look, don't worry about what else happens to anyone else. Do you know me? Do you trust me? Have I died for you? Have I loved you? Well, then you follow me. See, this is the gospel. The gospel is that we were dangling by a thread over the very flames of hell looking at our feet, mocking and provoking God to cut the cord that would have our sin drag us headlong into hell. And instead, he sends Jesus to be consumed by the anger that would have consumed us. And having satisfied the anger of God toward those who believed, Jesus now offers free forgiveness for anyone who would believe in him. And we are called to those, for those who know Jesus to spread this good news as far and wide as we possibly can. That is the purpose you now have in life. Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. And that mission continues on to his church. We are to carry out this mission of telling people who Jesus is, and the joy and the life and the peace that can be found in him. There is no other way or no other name by which men may be saved but Jesus. This is the purpose for you as a Christian. If you are a follower of Jesus and convinced about who he is, your purpose in life is to spread that good news as far as you possibly can. It's the thing that we're meant to do. And when we don't, I think it means that the Christian life goes a little bit wayward. I remember in high school when everyone was getting their peas, one of my friends, uh, his dad made the inexplicable decision to buy a Hilux, uh, he had no work use for it, I think he was having a bit of a midlife thing, he wanted to be a bit more working class, he was white collar and so he thought oh, I'll just get a Hilux or something like that, anyway, so he bought that and so that was the car that my friend had to learn to drive on, but because he had no particular use for it, like it was a, a decent sized Hilux and it had nothing in the tray, and if you know anything about that, uh, the Hilux is, re- is really built to carry like a fair bit of weight in the tray. And in fact, if you don't put anything in the tray, it actually doesn't drive, like it, it drives wonky. And I remember one time we were driving through Cremorne and we were going super slow and it was in the wet. We are probably going, we been going under 50 kilometers an hour. So it wasn't any reckless driving, nothing like that. Just going through kind of this windy road and the whole thing be, like, skidded out and turned sideways. And kind of got jammed between the median strip and the, and the, the sidewalk. So I had to do like an Austin Powers like 50 point turn to kind of like get out again. And, uh, and after that is they'd like just put, I don't know, put like hay bales or something in the back. Just to kind of weigh it down so that it would drive properly. Because that that's what it was meant for. It was meant to carry a load. And so when it didn't, it kind of went a bit wayward. Christians are meant to carry on the mission of Jesus. And when they don't, things start to skid out a bit. We're meant to carry on Christ's purpose in the world and and often when we don't, Christians can often start to to find themselves going a bit sideways. If you're a believer, you're called to follow Jesus. That means to carry on the mission that He started. That's what it means to follow. That's what it means to be a follower, is to follow. And that means that your purpose in life and everything is to spread that message of Jesus as far and wide as you possibly can. That that is the main purpose, that that all other questions, pragmatic questions, come under that one, or a subset of that one, where you work, live, relationships, all of those things come under that first calling to carry on the mission of Jesus in this world. It shouldn't be the case that Christians, for all the stresses and, and worries that you'd have in life, the one that shouldn't be there is, what am I meant to be doing? What's my purpose in life? It's clear from Jesus that the, the purpose of the church is to carry on the mission of Jesus. It, it, think about it like this. A, a soldier in a trench in war, though I could, I could be wrong. I've never been in a war, funnily enough. But a soldier in a trench in war, I don't imagine, for all the stress and the worries and the kind of conversations that come up, I don't imagine many sit there going like, I just don't know what I'm doing with my life. Uh, you know, I, I, I feel like I don't really have a purpose in things. Everyone knows if you're in a war, there's, there's one purpose. That's to survive and to win. That's what you're there to do. Now, there are plenty of other stresses and, and worries and horrid things to deal with. But the one question that's not for grabs is, what are we supposed to do? And it should be the same for Christians. The mission is clear. This is what we're here to do. Now, there are all kinds of other details to work out about where it is that we work or live or all these sort of things. But the main purpose is this. I'm here to share this message of Jesus with as many people as I possibly can before he takes me home. And all the other questions come under that. What job can I work that would lead to that? What relationships, where will I live given that this is my mission and purpose in life? And you know what, I think, this, I think this helps. And I think it's a comfort. I was thinking on this passage a few weeks ago and thinking about why it is that when it comes to contentment, have you ever thought about this, when it comes to feeling content in life, For some reason, it either doesn't help or it doesn't help for long if you just think about people who have it worse than you. Have you thought about that? Like it should be the case that when you consider what people are suffering in in parts of the world where they're struggling to survive, it should lead us to this overwhelming sense of gratitude, shouldn't it? Like it should be a, a constant thing in my mind like, I have it so much better than so many people. And yet for some reason, that feeling either doesn't last for very long almost has no impact at all. And I was thinking, I think this is why. I think that the assumption underneath that statement is that what will make me happy is stuff. And the reason I should be grateful is I have more stuff than others. But the the root of it is that if I have stuff, then I will be happy. But the problem with that is the logic goes the other way. Because there's always people who have more stuff than you. And you can always think, well, why shouldn't I have what they have? And so it ends up being no comfort at all because if it's true that I have more than someone else, well, someone else has more than me. And so often it doesn't lead to any kind of comfort. The comfort that we need is that, you know what? I have everything I need to find joy in life right now. And this, I think, is what Jesus is pitching to Peter. When Peter says, well, if I'm going to die early, what about someone else? Jesus says, don't worry about that. You just follow me. You know what you're supposed to do. You know what the mission is, and get on with that, and I will look after you. It will be life and life to the full. Jesus knows that comparison is not going to lead to joy. That actually just knowing who Jesus is, that he is worth following, is enough. It is the case that this is the only weapon against, against jealousy and envy and the constant fear of missing out. If your main purpose in life is to have stuff or even good things like relationships, you'll never be happy. Because either you won't get the things that you really wanted to get, or even worse, you'll get them and hit midlife and realize that it wasn't enough to build a life on. Ravi Zacharias, one philosopher, puts it this way. He says, the loneliest moment in life is when you get the thing that you thought would bring you most meaning and it lets you down. Because once you've got it, you're like, well, what's, what's there from here? Jesus says, that story is not enough. He says, don't worry about whatever else is going on, what other people have, what relationships they have, why their marriage isn't like yours, why they're in a relationship and you're not. He says, don't worry about that. He says, you just follow me. Follow me. Our wealthy culture is testament to the fact that you can have everything and still be miserable. But if you adopt Christ's purpose toward the world, Jesus says you'll have life and life to the full. See, it matters as a follower of Jesus that you follow this is his purpose for your life and so where to from here well if you are someone who is unconvinced about who jesus is john says this this book is for you the, the really there is enough in here to make a decision about whether or not jesus is the son of god and so if you've never done that i'd encourage you to do that even right now people are running through a course we run called christianity explored where you just do that you walk through a gospel of jesus and work out Is this true, and is Jesus the Son of God? Does He really transform our life? And if that is you, I'd encourage you to do that. That's what John's encouraging you to do from this passage. But if you're here and a follower of Jesus, I encourage you to follow Jesus. That if you're called to carry on the mission of God in this world, to do it. And oftentimes that's frightening. Oftentimes the concern is, well, I don't know enough. I'm not smart. I couldn't share Jesus with someone. But Jesus promises that he'll give us his Holy Spirit, that if you know and have read through the Gospel of John with us, that you know enough to tell someone else about who he is. And so I want to give it a shot. I'm going to post something up this, this week, uh, if you're in a missional community you can look at, which is a plan, uh, a way of sort of writing a few things down about how it is that you're going to share Jesus with someone. And you might be like, oh, that seems a bit like rigid or stilted or whatever it is. I don't know if you've heard this phrase, but um, someone has said, I don't know who it was, but they were very wise, that, uh, that a goal without a plan is just a wish. Like if you say, like, I really want to get fit, and you have no plan, it's just a wish. It's like saying, I wish I was fit. I think many followers of Jesus wish they would make disciples, but don't have any real plan to. And so I want to encourage you over this week to think about it. This week, as we wrap up, we'll hit our last study in John, And missional communities, will go on a a break in July. We've got a a bunch of other things coming up, which you'll hear about soon. Um, But over that time, to think and reflect and pray and think, how is it, given that if this is true about Jesus, and my purpose in life is to share this as far and wide as I can, how am I going to do that? Practically, how am I going to do that? And to get some help with it. But secondly, as a church, over the next part of the year, we want to help you with that. Over the next six months, we're going to look through the full story of the Bible. So from beginning to end, we're going to have time looking at what it is, how it is that the Word of God is authoritative, true, reliable, and look at the full story of the Bible so that you will know the Word deeply. And then after that, to have a series where we're going to share the Word as wide as we can to actually show you how it is that you might share Jesus uh, and share the good news about Him as far and wide as possible. Because if it is the case that the Gospel of John is right and that this ending is true, that followers are called to follow, and that means adopting Christ's mission to the world, we're called to do it, and we'll find life to the full in it. And we started with the idea that a life built just on comfort and me and how can I get the most out of this world is probably not enough to get us past 50. But Jesus' mission is. It's a calling and purpose for life that you can throw your whole life into and not be dissatisfied. We caught up with some friends recently and, uh, and they're about the same kind of friends as were mentioned in that article at the beginning. Kind of friends that I've known since I was back in high school. And they uh, technically in terms of lifestyle in Sydney had made it. they had kids, they're in a house, they're in a school right near their house. They're kind of set. That they, could, they could execute a 30-year plan. And as I was talking to him, he was saying that they're going to, they're going to Dubai. And not because they want to evade tax or whatever else can happen in, in Dubai. Um, no, that's the only reason, of course, right? Um, he wasn't going for a career advancement. He wasn't going for a promotion. Uh, they're going over there because they want to share the good news of Jesus with people over there who are expats and with the working migrant community. So they're going to turn to flip up the, the Australian dream and head over there and do that. And you can say many things about their life, but it's certainly not boring. And it's because they've adopted Christ's purpose to the world, and that's where it's led them. And that won't be all of us. But it's an incredible adventure to say, Jesus, if I take this seriously, if the gospel is true, then I'll go anywhere for for the sake of your name. Let's pray that we too would follow the call to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are a good and heavenly God. You've given us this message, the gospel and that you've entrusted us with leading this out, but haven't left us as orphans in the world, that you've given us your Holy Spirit, that we might be empowered to share the message of Jesus with as many people as we can before you were at a point to bring us home. And Father, we pray that you would make us a loving and servant-hearted people just as Christ was, that we would be like our Master and Savior, that we would pour out our lives to love and serve other people for their good, that they may know Jesus and find forgiveness and hope and joy and meaning in him. And Father, we pray that you would do this, that you might be glorified in your church. Amen. We're going to spend some time as we do week in and week out just reflecting. And after that, Gabe's going to let us know what's happening next.